A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 35 of the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. My name is Ben Johnson. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have two copies of the new Cine Asia UK Blu-ray release of Dante Lam's explosive Chinese box office smash Operation Red Sea to give away in this month's competition. To be in with a chance of winning, simply sign up to our monthly newsletter at kungfumovieguide.com. Type in your email address when prompted, and once you have verified your email address, we will sort out the rest. Competition details will be revealed in the next newsletter, which is released on the 28th of October, so that's this Sunday. So sign up today, become a registered Foo follower, and don't miss out on this great opportunity to win some free stuff. Yes, go ahead and do that, and best of luck. Okay, we've got a conversation with... Bruce Lee biographer Matthew Polly on today's show. It's an absolute treat. Very much looking forward to sharing that interview with you. So, without any further ado, here we go. Well, if you're really so determined to have a fight, then I'll oblige. Yes, yes, yes. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world, Foo followers everywhere, wherever you are, wherever you're tuning in and listening to this. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the show. Episode 35. You're welcome. I've got a really good conversation to share with you today with the incredibly knowledgeable and engaging Bruce Lee biographer Matthew Polly. He's got an excellent new book out called Bruce Lee, A Life. You can buy it right now from where, wherever it is that you buy books. It's a fully comprehensive, heavily researched account of Lee's journey from Hong Kong child actor to Hollywood and back again, where despite dying so young at the age of 32, Bruce Lee not only became a global martial arts phenomenon, but also an icon who bridged the cultural divide between East and West. Polly's book is based on years of research and interviews with over 100 people, uh, including Lee's uh, family, friends and business partners. It's an honest and revealing account of Lee's life, and I cannot recommend it enough. It's a, it's a fantastic read. 2018, of course, marks the 45th anniversary of Bruce Lee's death. I was incredibly fortunate to catch Matthew when he was over here in the UK back in July of this year. He had literally just flown in from the States to present a, a Bruce Lee events made a beeline from the airport to a small room which I'd rented out in a studio here in London to record this interview where we get to go deep on all things Bruce Lee. We chatted for a considerable time, well over an hour, and I think I was still yelling questions at him as he was running for his taxi. So uh, yes, very excited to 
bring you this conversation today. I will throw over to that in a second. Before I do, thank you all so much for your kind messages over social media about the show, uh, particularly over Facebook uh, and the feedback that we've been getting from the previous episode with Sophia Crawford. That's live and online. Go and check it out if you haven't already. A lot of the comments online have been very kind. Thank you so much. Uh, I do love to hear from you guys and also uh, any requests that you send me for potential guests or people that you'd like to see on the podcast. That's very good indeed. It's great to hear your suggestions. If you ever do want to get in touch with the show, of course, it is very simple. We have an email address. It's hello at kungfumovieguide.com. You can also send us messages over Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I should just say that this episode of the show is actually going to be the last one in this current season of podcast, season three. Um, I'm planning to go on a little break after this for, for a little while. Uh, and there is some boring admin things and updates to the website that really do need to be sorted. So I'm planning to go off air for a little bit and jump into that for a little while. However, there will undoubtedly be intermittent episodes dropping every so often uh, over the coming months or so. So apologies if this show does take on a bit more of an ad hoc nature going forward. But to make sure that you never miss a new episode of this podcast, the best thing to do, of course, is to subscribe to it via your podcast provider. We are on all the major platforms. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, SoundCloud and many others. So keep it locked to the usual KFMG Pod's social media channels as well as the newsletter to get all the latest details on the show, including when new episodes will be dropping. There's always the archive, of course, to go back to if you've missed any of the episodes from this year. And we've been very lucky to have some truly awesome people on the show this year, including the likes of Amy Johnston, Joey Anser, Bob Wall, from Enter the Dragon, Kung Lee, Scott Adkins, Diana Lee and Asanto, Alan Moosey, Brian Larkin, Jean-Paul Lee, Sophia Crawford, Jesse V. Johnson, to name merely a few. So with that in mind, thank you so much for supporting this show. That is very much appreciated. And if you do listen to this and think you have a buddy or someone else who will enjoy it just as much, then why not recommend it to them and help to spread the word of the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. Okay, it's Matthew Polly time. If you are a Bruce Lee nerd, then this episode is uh, especially for you. Uh, Matthew's book is called Bruce Lee, A Life. We gave away some free copies of the book in our newsletter a few months back, which you may remember. If you did miss out on that, then Foo followers, you really do need to grab yourself a copy of this book. I highly recommend that you do. It's a great read. And Matthew is the perfect guide to tell Bruce Lee's story. His other books include American Shaolin, which is based on his two-year stint studying Kung Fu at the Shaolin Temple in China, and Tapped Out, an Odyssey in Mixed Martial Arts. You can find out more about Matthew at mattpolly.com, and he is also on Twitter. His Twitter name is at Matthew E. Polly. Okay, that's more than enough from me. Let's hear from the man himself as we discuss all things Bruce Lee with the great Matthew Polly. (laughs) 
I guess the first thing that I wanted to pick up on was um, I can't believe there hasn't been a, a book like this before, like a fully comprehensive Bruce Lee biography. Yeah. Why is that, do you think? Uh, well, before I jump into that, I just want to say thanks for having me. And so your listeners know we're actually in London. Yes. This isn't some call-in. This is yeah. the real deal, face-to-face. <laughs> That's, That's right. pretty rare in podcasting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to note that. And thank you for having me. That's really great. Um, I think there's two issues. Why hasn't there been a proper Bruce Lee book? Uh, one is that um, I think there's a soft bigotry against Asians uh, and Asian celebrities. And how do I know that? Because there's only about three of them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In the mainstream culture. Yeah. Uh, and so they're generally ignored. Mm. It's not that they're uh, actively, anyone has some active prejudice against them, but yeah. it's just considered not important. So even when I was selling the Bruce Lee book, to people, they were like, well, does does anybody really want to read a Bruce Lee book? Like, will we really? sell many copies? Yeah. And I had several rejections based on that. And I was like, he's one of the five most famous human beings on earth. Absolutely. Like, you can't go anywhere and you don't, someone yeah. knows Bruce Lee. They might not want to read the book, but they know who he is. Yeah. And there are only a few people like that. Ali, yeah. et cetera. Um, even David Beckham doesn't yeah. have that same following. So at any rate, um, I think there's that bigotry. And then I also think Kung Fu... Uh, in, you know, sort of higher brow culture is considered something low brow. Sure. Uh, and so because he was a, I always joke, if Bruce Lee had been a poet who had converted like 20 million people into Chinese like calligraphy, yeah. there would be five books about him. Yeah. But because he was a Kung Fu martial artist and that's considered just slightly above horror. Sure. Is a genre. Um, He's he's treated as someone who's not a major cultural figure, and I think that's why it went that way. And then finally, I would say um, the estate has enjoyed a lot of control over his image. Yeah. Particularly, you were just off earlier saying about Dragon, the Bruce Lee movie. That's right. That was Linda, based on Linda Lee's book. Yeah. And then that was the only thing out there for the longest time. That's and right. so um, over the years, they haven't been, they haven't, let's put it this way, they haven't gone out of their way to try to get an independent biography ready. Yeah. <laughs> They've enjoyed the fact that her, Linda's version of who her husband was, which she has every right to tell, is was the only one out there. Yeah. Yeah. So that picks up on a very good point because this is an unauthorized biography. But having said that, um, you've got original interviews there. You've met Linda. You met with Shannon. Yeah. uh, You met with the Lee family in your research for this. So was there any pushback from the estates, the Bruce Lee estates, with regards to this book? Or were they fully – it sounds like they were fully cooperative with doing the book. Yeah. they. um, First, I want to say I really admire Linda. She's gone through two horrific tragedies, Mm -hmm. uh, losing a husband and a son. Yeah. Uh, And – she has every right to be off the wall, and yep. she's a completely honorable, decent human being when you meet her. And Shannon is quite lovely as well and has done a, a, a strong job holding the estate together. Yeah. Uh, I went in with a book project in hand saying I already have a biography. They're already going to pay me. I'm going to do it no matter what. Fine. So I wasn't asking their permission. Yeah. Um, and we sat down and... And basically, the estate's position over the years has been they never work with someone who's going to talk about Bruce's death. Yes. 
Um, and the way I sort of joke about it is the Elvis estate will never do anything. It will never release any photos of Elvis during his fat period. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. It stops, doesn't it, at yeah. a certain point? Yeah. yeah. So uh, every estate has its own little quirk, the thing they don't really want to talk about. Yeah. And so Shannon, very honestly, was like, we're, uh, we're, we don't like talking about his death. Yeah. And I said, well, it's a 600-page book. I can't yeah. skip it. <laughs> and it's the one question that everyone yes, asks about. that's really. a thing. So they very kindly granted the interviews. And then after a while, I think they felt like um, I was going to delve into topics they were less comfortable with. And mm. so we amicably parted ways. Okay. So okay. they. So I haven't talked to them since then, and uh, yeah, and yeah. they they've I think quite politely have just not responded to the book. Yeah, I was going to say, way. have you had any feedback at all from them on the book or or anything? Not no, you hear things around the edges from sure. various people, but they've officially not said anything, and um, and I understand because when you're digging into somebody's closet a few skeletons pop out exactly yes and who, who wants there to find out something about their father they didn't know about yes right yeah and so you feel like i personally as the biographer was like i wasn't looking it just yeah. popped out what do you want me to do i mean i can't skip it so yeah. you're in a tough position yeah. so i understand that uh, uh i think the honorable thing is to be like hey we have our version he has his version sure sure each his way <laughs> Did you come at this with a particular angle in mind that you wanted to take, or were you just approaching it, trying to be non-biased, just like, I'm going to hit the research and then see what portrait of this man sort of conjures up? Right. So that's a great question, and one of the things I thought about is I what I did is I read everything that had ever been written by Bruce Lee, yeah. which has turned out to be a lot. Yeah. And... Uh, the best books were actually the first two, um, Alex Ben Block's yes. uh, uh, The Legend of Bruce Lee and Don Atoyo and F Felix Dennis's yeah. King of Kung Fu. Yeah. And that's because they had no idea who Bruce Lee was. Mm -hmm. And they sort of approached it openly as like a reporter, like, let's go figure out who this, he's famous, yeah. he's in this movie, but we've never heard of him. Yeah. And I wanted to approach him that way. If I had any uh, sort of angle or edge I felt like um, just inevitably the Western English language versions of Bruce focused on his life after he came back from Hong Kong when he was 18. Yeah. Because those people are easier to talk to yeah. if you don't speak Mandarin sure. or Cantonese. And I speak Mandarin and have a, uh, I spent two years in China. And so I felt like that was something I could bring to a story. Yeah. So the one thing I wanted to make certain of was that I got his childhood. And that, for me, once I, probably the most seminal moment or the, the biggest experience changing my perspective was when I went to Hong Kong and I went to the Hong Kong Film Archives and I sat in there for like six days and just watched all 20 of his childhood movies. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> and the Mandarin ones I could understand. The yeah. Cantonese ones that they were That's so sad. bad they didn't even translate them yeah. into Mandarin were yeah. tough. But what you realize was like, oh my God, he's an actor. Yeah. Like, he's yeah. an actor. And Kung Fu was a later passion that yeah. then emerged yeah. and became a Kung Fu actor. But he was playing comedies and melodramas. He was Macaulay Culkin. He was the scrappy orphan. Uh, he, play, he did a James Dean version character, Rebel Without a Cause, yeah. called The Orphan. And when you see those movies, then you realize the versatility. And it also made me think... Um, 
if he had continued to live, we would have gotten to see those things as well. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. He'd have done some silly comedy action. Yeah. And he'd have done like some like romance action. Sure. And then he might have dropped the action and just done a straight romance if yeah. it had worked. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you would have seen so Bruce Lee wouldn't have just been considered just kung fu the yeah. way we do because Almost everybody only watches those four last four movies. Yes. You touch on an interesting point there with the cultural difference between the East and the West mm. and the perceptions of Bruce Lee since he died. I just, I mean, even during Bruce Lee's lifetime, he sort of struggled with this, didn't he? Right. Uh, he was too American to be accepted in, in, in China. China have, have sort of adopted Bruce Lee quite late. You know, the statue in yes. Hong Kong was only unveiled, what, 10 years ago or something? Yeah. What do you think the reason was for, for that, that late acceptance? So I think what's interesting about him after his death is that in Hong Kong, in Southeast Asia, Taiwan, he was the biggest star in the world. Yeah. He was bigger than the Beatles. And he was almost completely unknown in the West. Yeah. So the West, after Enter the Dragon, fell in love with him. And Hong Kong actually became disillusioned. Yeah. His star declined um, because his death was mired in scandal. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also he'd built himself with this kind of heroic image. And so to die from maybe an aspirin in a yeah. woman's apartment, it was just was a shabby death. Yeah. Uh, and you could see also have it, the estate, Linda having gone through that experience, why she doesn't like to talk about it. Mm. Um, and so uh, they sort of fell out of love with him at the same time the West was falling in love with yeah. him. And so you could actually see the divergence. Um, and so what changed was mainland China, which was completely closed yep. until the late 80s and opened up in the 90s, at some point decides it wants to reclaim Bruce Lee as a Chinese hero. Yeah. And it comes out with the uh, the CCTV, state-run TV version, 50-part series. I think The Legend of Bruce Lee is the translation. That's right, yes. In yeah, 2008. Yeah. yeah. And it's the biggest hit state TV's ever had. Sure. And I have young, like, I have some students at Yale who will come up to me who are from mainland China, and they're like, I saw it, I loved it, what'd you think of it? And I'm like, it's terrible. Sure. <laughs> it's almost unwatchable, yeah. mate, I don't know what you're talking about. But at that time, it was sort of state-of-the-art TV in mainland China. Yeah. Uh, and when that happened, then Hong Kong decided, oh, we've, we've got some, let's revitalize yeah. his image. Yeah. And so I think it was very pragmatic, as yeah. you would expect from the Hong Kongese. Um, to uh, to sort of revitalize Bruce as well as part of their tourist attraction. Yeah. And so when I was in Hong Kong in 2013 for the 40th anniversary of his death, um, you know, you just saw truckloads or busloads of mainland tourists who would come up to the Bruce Lee statue, stand in front of him and do the pose. And so uh, that's completely... None of these people knew who Bruce Lee was because they couldn't see his movies until yeah, of course. until the mid-90s. So that's what happened. Yeah. The perception, it seems, is that, um, you know, when he went off to Hollywood, that that was, that was what corrupted him in a way. But you're saying now, no, this, it's, there is a more of an acceptance in China of, of him and, and who he was. Yeah. Well, I think, I think what it is is there was, there's a hunger in mainland China for Chinese heroes. Yeah. And because they want to be a superpower... Uh, someone who has iconic status across the world yeah. is useful to them. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think what's interesting about Lee as an archetype is he presages a more muscular Chinese image. Yeah. Uh, and the kind of stereotype up until that point was the head down, bowed, you know, 
houseboy, working the pigtail, all of those kind of horrible stereotypes. And Lee comes in with a, almost like a rapper, yeah. with a swagger, right? <laughs> he walks on screen with an attitude, yeah. sort of chest back, plus yeah. forward. And that's who he was in person. But on screen, he just presented the Chinese male in a different way. Yeah. And you can see that's part of the reason Hong Kongese fell in love with him. But that's also sort of what mainland China wants to represent now. Yeah. How much of that from Lee's part was intentional? Or do you think, because what comes across strong, strongly in the book is that he was very much an individualist. Like he, he very much champions the, um, you know, be the, be the best you can be. Whether he was aiming for a particularly strong nationalism, mm. to me, is, is unclear. I'm just wondering what, what, what you think, think about that. Well, I think Lee's interesting um, because he's Eurasian. Yeah. And so he was discriminated growing up. Uh, the story telling the book is when Ip Man's students got frustrated with him because yeah. he was kind of a cocky kid. Yeah. Uh, they tried to kick him out based on the fact that he wasn't full Chinese. Mm. And I know living in China that um, it's called mixed blood. Yeah. Um, is there's some subtle prejudice that goes on there. And then, of course, he comes to America and he's discriminated against. And I think what's interesting about Bruce is he's a post-racial figure in the sense that he appeals across racial lines. Yeah. But his way was not to deny any of his heritage, but to be proud of it wherever he was. So when he was in America, he he was really proud about being Chinese. Yeah. And he played it up and he, he did our Chinese things. And then he went back to Hong Kong and he was really proud about his Americanness. Yeah. And when he had a beard and they were like writing things about yeah. him that he, I thought was this great moment. This, yeah. this beard becomes a controversy. Um, he's like, I think there's going to be way more beards because I'm doing it. He doesn't yeah. back off at all. And so he managed to um, never deny his mixed heritage um, but also sort of strive for a post-racial thing. And that's what I think is interesting about him as a person. And I, I think he just got into the movie. Those movies he made just because they were the ones that were there. Yes. Right? Yes. I don't think he was particularly into Chinese nationalism at all. No. I think he was uh, mostly apolitical. Mm. Um, I think he possessed the... He was like... You meet somebody and they have the typical sort of resentments of their country. Yeah. So he was a little resentful of the Brits for yeah. having all the money and being in control of Hong Kong. Yeah. And he was a little resentful of the Japanese because yeah. of the war and yeah. what his parents told him about that experience. Um, but And so in those movies, it's not that he's faking the like Japanese thing, um, but they're clearly playing it up. Yeah. And, and if yeah. they had given him a movie where he was like mad at the Russians, yeah. he'd have played that one well too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, he, and, and it's important to understand when he had a chance to write his own movie, he said it in Italy with this kind of fake mafia. That's right. Um, Fist of Fury wasn't his project. Yeah. He was just a pay, he was a contract actor yes. at that point. He's in America in the 1960s, height of the civil rights movement. There's so much political, you know, Vietnam. There's so much going on, but you don't... It doesn't seem as if any of that had any yeah. impact or Im effect on his life. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's one of the interesting things. I asked um, Linda that specifically. Mm. Um, because if you're a writer and someone's going through an era... You want them to be sort of part of what was going on. Yeah. Um, and she almost seemed embarrassed, but she was like, no, we didn't read the newspaper. We didn't pay attention to the news. Um, and I think, you know, my parents were very conservative 
And I never heard anything about any of these movements from them either. Yeah. And I think what it is is 10% of the American population was very engaged in the civil rights movement and yeah. the protests and whatever. And 90% could care less and was just going about their lives. Yeah. And Bruce was the 90%. The one thing I do think was interesting about him is when he got to Hollywood, he did pick up a little bit on the hippie counterculture. Sure. Which is like he would wear dashikis, he'd smoke a little pot. Yeah. Uh, and his philosophy in many ways, the um, Cheat Kundo, uh, Jita Krishnamurti, was very much a kind of um, 60s yeah. anti-tradition, yeah. anti-establishment kind of viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, there's a great quote from Dan Innocento where he says something like, it was the 60s, everyone talked like this. Yeah, that's right, yeah. because, uh, you know, the Bruce had on the wall, like, using no way is way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having no limit is limitation. Uh, and Bruce was pulling from Zen. What's interesting about him is because he was, he was, he was, he's a Eurasian, born in America, raised in Hong Kong. He was pulling different uh, traditions together. Um, and so he's pulling kind of Zen Buddhism via Alan Watts, a British yeah. philosopher, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and he's also, you know, doing Jita Krishnamurti, who's this kind of new age figure who comes out of the Theosophic the Society. So yeah. all this kind of weird things are like swirling around in his head. I, I just felt oftentimes when I talked to people, it was like Bruce was that guy in sophomore year in college who you go get high with and like talk <laughs> about these deep ideas. Yes. Uh, yes. And I think he just sat around with Coburn and yeah. Siliphant after they had their workout yeah. and just like rapped. Yeah. That like I think he like Well the silent flute certainly has that yeah. 60s Doesn't it? high yeah. kind of um transcendental vibe to it. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting because uh, the perception of Bruce Lee is this very, nowadays, a very deep thinker, philosophical. Um, I know even at the time he said that he studied philosophy, but he, he obviously he didn't major in philosophy. <laughs> he took two classes. He took two classes. <laughs> I, when I got his transcript, uh, yeah. he was a drama student, I got his transcript and I was like, he took intro so, yeah. 101 to philosophy. <laughs> So, but, but yeah, yes. but it's interesting how that could sort of help his cause in a way in the, yeah. in the philosophy, the way that he was he was teaching. Do you think it was that calculated, or was he genuinely, you know, a deep thinker like that? Um, he he was an autodidact, which is yeah. interesting. He was a terrible student. You put him in a sort of uh, you know a formal setting, he just it couldn't accept authority or being told what to read. Yeah. But if he was allowed to pick what to read, he was very passionate about it. And so um, some of the people I interviewed were like, you know, I think it was kind of a con. He knew that there was a bunch of hippy-dippy white celebrities who were into this Eastern mysticism, and he could be like Mr. Yeah. Guru to sure. them. Um, but the, the fact is he had like 500 books on philosophy that yeah. he edited and noted. And uh, one of his girlfriends said something I thought was fascinating where she said, Sharon Farrell said, you know, when he would talk about this, you know, be like water thing. I just didn't get that and I would ignore him. And the image I had in my mind is some guy who's just so into this, he talks about it all the time, yeah. even to people who aren't interested. And that to me is, you know, it's like your nerd friend who will talk yeah. about a subject. I don't know, maybe you, but you know, when you get into something <laughs> yeah, and you're yeah. like, you go on and on and on, that's genuine. So sure. I think it was both. I think he was genuinely interested, but he was also smart enough to know that his genuine interest had commercial benefit. Yeah. 
And the Be Like Water, they were Sterling Silliphant's words. They were, you know, in, in Longstreet, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So in retrospect, all this stuff is attributed to Bruce Lee, but it's not necessarily... Yeah, so that, I mean, one of the moments I think is great is every documentary pulls that clip from the Pierre Burton interview. That's right, yeah. Um, but they cut off the setup, which is like, Sterling Silliphant wrote this thing for you in Longstreet. Yeah. Can, do you remember the line? Yeah. And then as an actor, he says, yes, I remember the line. And then he does the line, but they cut that part off and just do the line as if this is his words. Yes. yes. And and of course, what they're trying to do is create Bruce Lee, the philosoph- the enlightened Zen master. Uh, and my sort of view was he was, if you give him another 30 or 40 years, he might have gotten there. Yeah. But at 32, he, yeah. was, he was a guy with a lot of ideas bouncing around his head and also a lot of materialistic ambitions yes. and other things yeah. and so yeah. um, he, his, his philosophical genius has been overhyped there's that perception of him being this deep thinker and a very serious man but the thing that really comes out in the book is um, he's such a good laugh to be around as yeah. well you know he seemed like a really fun uh, character you know always playing practical jokes yeah. that isn't just based on one or two anecdotes like, it seems like everyone he spoke to yep. had similar stories Along, along those lines. Yeah, yeah, so that's what's interesting, and that's where I, I once I understood him as an actor first, mm. it made sense. Like, he would get in a group of his friends, and he would start doing voices and yeah. telling jokes, and he reminded me of those very extroverted, always-on, kind yeah. of showman-like friends I have who, sure. who are actors. And, and that's... He wasn't the stoic martial arts master who was up on the top of the hill yeah. thinking deep thoughts, although he did like to think deep thoughts. But most of the time, he was a good laugh. Like, mm. people loved being around him. Um, you know, Linda completely fell in love with him because she would be part of the group, and she, he, she talked about how he made her laugh until her stomach hurt. Yeah. Um, and that was his kind of great gift. And what was interesting, though is I think it was all in the delivery because I couldn't find a joke that was genuinely funny when you put it on the page. <laughs> There's like one in the yeah. book that I got down. But um, I think he just like, as the way he told it, and that was his gift as a performer. He could just make, he could get you right into a, move, a moment. Um, and I just, that's why I always think of him as like an actor. He was this, he always on, charming, yeah, yeah. Uh, good guy to have around. Was that, what were the things that you noticed as you were researching the book and this picture of him was developing? Did anything, what surprised you about him? Um, well, I actually didn't know about the pot smoking, so, yeah. and, and then I was like, oh, it's the 60s, he's an actor. And, you know, you see the, like, that he had a full-length mink coat, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, I've known all sorts of martial artists, and they're not a stereotype. They're, like, you know, very materialistic ones and whatever. Yeah. But you just, if someone says, this guy has a Porsche and a full-length mink coat, is he a Hollywood actor or is he a Zen martial arts master? <laughs> Which one would you pick, yeah, right? Sure. So that, to sure. me, like, he he behaved in ways that, make perfect sense for a celebrity yeah. um, but are more problematic for um, a martial arts master yes yes there were some lines that expressed your philosophy I don't know if you remember them or not oh you... I remember that I That's said here. this is what it is okay you're talking to Longstreet played by James Francesca I said empty your mind be formless shapeless like water now you put water into a cup 
it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Like that, you see? Oh, I see, I get the idea. Uh -huh. I, I get the, the power behind it. The role of Linda in his life. Yeah. Um, very much overlooked, really, isn't she? Yes. Um, I mean, how important was Linda to Bruce's life, would you say? Uh, I think she's overlooked because she was the yin to his yang. He's such a charismatic figure that yeah. people want to focus on him all the time. Yeah. And even when I was working on the book, I would have to go back and be like, I, I'm ignoring her. She needs to be in here more. Yeah. Um, I think she's crucial because he would not have succeeded if he hadn't married her. Yeah. Uh, she was the sort of rock that he relied on. And also having a family early um, gave him a sort of sense of purpose. Yeah. Because he was a bit of a um, well-off toff, yeah. as it were. <laughs> he came from quite a rich yes. uh, upbringing. Which is totally different from the image. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, Dragon, the story. It's a rags to riches. Rags to riches yeah. story because when Linda met him in Seattle, he was rags. Yes, that's right. Um, he was a, he was working in, in uh, Ruby Chow's restaurant, living in a closet. But that's only because his rich father sent him there to be punished. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he was a rich kid being punished in America. Yeah. Um, and, and that's his story, genuinely. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think what Linda did for him is give him the stability and, and the utter devotion mm. to pursue his dreams. Yeah. And if he had had a wife that was like, you know, you can't pay the mortgage. This acting thing isn't working out. Yes. yes. Which I think a good 50% of the women would have said to him yeah. if he had chosen to marry. Or Amy Sambo, who he dated, who was like, what about my career? Yeah. Um, and if he had had to try to be like, oh, honey, I'll try to see your, your new set. Yeah. He needed, because what he wanted to do was so impossible, he needed an absolute devoted uh, helpmate yeah. as a wife, yeah, and and also someone who could um, stabilize him because he was he was hyperactive and his personality was very volatile, yeah, and he needed someone who was like calmed him, yes, and he had a very traditional outlook and approach to women, particularly I guess the, you know the rise of the sort of second wave of feminism as that's coming into the the sixties. Do you think he bought into that? <laughs> no, that's. I mean, that's why I think the Amy Sambo relationship is yeah. fascinating, because she's like, he just wants to control me, yeah, and I want to go be uh, who I am. It's very hard to explain to a Western audience, but China is a polygamous culture for two thousand years. Yeah, Bruce's grandfather had thirteen concubines. Bruce didn't believe in monogamy. Yeah. He, he did not grow up in a culture that believed in monogamy. Mm. And in fact, Western monogamy is a minority view at that time. Sure. Only in Europe and America, all of Asia and all the Muslim world is polygamous. So um, I think Bruce, Bruce's attitude was he genuinely was devoted to his wife. He genuinely loved her. He never wanted to hurt her feelings. Yeah. And so he was discreet. Mm. But he didn't feel like he was unfaithful because he didn't buy into a uh, Western Christian monogamous version. Yes. Right? So he was devoted but not faithful. Yeah. And I, I think if you asked him, he wouldn't have considered it cheating. Yeah. I think he just viewed it as like, 
what a guy gets to do. Mm. And that was a very, even in America, there was that kind of Mad Men double standard. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't just Hong Kong, this kind of Don Draper, like, I got my beautiful blonde wife at home. She looks yeah. after the kids and I pay for everything. And I come home and I kiss her and I'm, I never hurt her and yeah. I'm always good. But when I'm out with the boys, we do what the boys do. Yes. And um, But did you put any of this to Linda when you met her? Because she knew about a lot of these affairs. There were, I mean, there's Thoris Brandt on the Green Hornet, Sharon Farrell that we mentioned there during the Marlowe years, Betty Ting Pei, obviously, which I'm sure we'll come on to in a sec. Yes. Um, and he wasn't really discreet about it, was he? Let's be honest. Well, he was discreet enough because I don't think she knew about any of them yeah, but Betty. Yeah, uh, okay. She so, knew about Betty. Obviously. Yeah, well, and she, in her own book, so I'm quoting her, and from 1975 when she writes it, yeah. <clears throat> she wrote, I had never considered whether my, fa- my husband was unfaithful until right after his death when it's revealed that he died in Betty's apartment. Sure. Okay. Which means she didn't know about anything up until that point. Yeah. At least yeah. according to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I interviewed her, I had just interviewed Betty and she held the position that she was not convinced that the Betty for years had not said they were having an affair. Yes. Yes. And when I interviewed her was the first time she admitted that to a Western reporter and I wrote that down yeah. and published it. And Linda talked to me afterwards in order to sort of be like, I don't think that's true. And I, I had a moment where I looked at her and I said, really? Mm. And she said, well, he was such a good husband. He was so devoted to his kids. I don't think he would have done anything to hurt them. Yeah. And I thought that was a very interesting frame for her to understand things. Yes. Um, because I think that he was. He loved his wife, he loved yep. his kids, and he never would have wanted to do anything to hurt them. Yeah. He just didn't view that as hurting them, as long as it was quiet and off on the yeah. side. Yeah. Um, and so they could both be right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. about it. I see, I see what you mean. Yeah. And yeah. so it's hard for me because I grew up in Kansas, <laughs> Catholic, conservative. Yeah. Like, it took me a while to get my head around it because, to me, cheating's cheating. Yes. You make a vow and you marry, yeah. then you don't yeah. do this. Yeah. Um, and so it, I had to ask myself, does this make me rethink about Bruce? And, and it was important to put him into context. Yeah. I mean, should it change the way that we see him, or do you just think that that is just part of human nature in a way? No, I think what it what I realized is, um, it's like judging an Aztec for human sacrifice. Like, you can't judge a Hong Kong man from the 1950s for having multiple yeah. affairs because they all did it. Yeah, and and so you're you're imposing a completely alien moral structure on someone else. Now, I happen to think. Monogamy is a superior moral vision. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a relativist. Yeah. Um, but you, when you go back, like or Mormons in the 19th century, they were polygamist. Yeah. Um, you could say that's wrong, but they didn't think so. So that's that's my view, which is he simply didn't believe in monogamy, and he married a woman who did, and he was doing his best to figure out how to na- navigate that. Yeah. <clears throat> and they reached a basic, uh, not uncommon compromise, which is. As long as you don't leave me and as long as you don't put it in my face, I'm okay with this. Yeah. And his his view was, I'll never let this interfere with my family life and yeah. I will keep it on the side. Yeah. But the Betty Ting Pei thing. Yes. So that's where he starts to lose his that's grip That's where he's on losing it. it there. Yeah. So because I didn't realize how long <clears throat> that actually went on for. Yes. 
so you know they're meeting around the time of uh, even Way of the Dragon. So that's like what's that early seventy two? Yeah. So they must have been seeing each other off and on for a good year and a bit. Yeah, right about a year. You met with Betty Ting Pei. I did. So is she obviously at the time hounded by the press? She was the last person to see Bruce Lee alive. Yeah. Did you get a sense from her that she is still very remorseful? What, what's, what's where she at? She feels uh, what I thought was interesting, and I'm sure because she was talking to me, she's reliving that moment. Yeah. But it's an open wound for mm. her. Yeah. Um, when I talked to Linda, I felt like I was talking to someone who still very much loves someone, but who had passed away a long time ago. Sure. I mean, and had, had buried them. And and. For Betty, Bruce is still very much alive. Mm. And and so her emotions were all over the place. Like, But mostly there was a sense of victimization. She kept saying over and again, people kept blaming me. Yeah. You know, what did I do? Like, they keep blaming me. And, and so if what she's saying is correct. She is just a victim of terrible luck. Yeah. Or, or fate. Yeah. Um, in the sense that he died in her bed in her apartment and she got stuck with everybody who was a fan of Bruce Lee saying why didn't you do this or why didn't you do that mm. Mm. Um, but no there's there's no I don't think she feels like there was anything she could have done different yeah and she was open and honest with you she felt that you were you were getting a heartfelt honest response from her I uh, I did 13 hours of wow. interviews over three days, yeah. of which maybe 45 was about specifically about her relationship with Bruce Lee. Okay. Um, so I think that she was giving me bits and pieces and yeah. still holding stuff back. Yeah. And there are certain elements of the story I, I it was very frustrating because I couldn't get no, you know, 13 hours. I spent every way possible <laughs> yeah, as an interviewer. Yeah. Um, and, and she would like say, I don't want to talk about that or pull it back. So, um, I think there's still things to be that could be told by her, but I also think there's a part of her who likes that people will still come around and talk to her, and so part of the reason she holds back is so that she still has a little mystery and thus, sure. thus some value. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Sure. My superior kung fu will finish you off. There's still so much mystery surrounding uh-huh. Bruce Lee's death. Yes. There's a large portion of the, the book there, yeah. uh, which is dedicated to the day he dies and, and obviously the uh, inquest afterwards, which was resulted in death by misadventure. Yeah, yeah. You have your own theories on Bruce Lee's death. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know. It's not spoilers, maybe. No, do you no. Wanna, it's, uh, we, do you mind talking spoiled. about it? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, a couple things are important to understand. A, a couple revelations occurred for me um, that allowed me to sort of get a grasp over this because yeah. it's a huge mess. And when you read it, you know, there's people I still in Hong Kong. They're like, ah, everyone believes he was killed by the triads. And members, uh, siblings, and I won't name them, believe that Raymond Chow killed him mm. to this day. Yeah. Like people, his, his own family. Yeah. Uh, so it's still a hot issue. And yeah. that's what I thought was interesting is that, uh, you know, when your own family is divided on why somebody dies, that's not a, that's not a dead issue. It's very alive. Sure. Uh, the revelation I had was um, Raymond Chow... And Betty Tingpei, the last two people to see him alive, Raymond, his boss, uh, Betty, his mistress, were not trying to cover up how he died. They were trying to cover up where he died. Yeah. He died in her apartment. They knew that would be a scandal. Raymond Chow had entered the dragon to release. Mm -hmm. He was trying to get the body somewhere else so he could claim that Bruce died at home with his wife. And once you realize that, then you realize why he did all these things. Mm. That Bruce was already dead by the time Betty like, went inside to check on him. He, yeah. he had said, I want to go lie down. Yep. Uh, and so all of this was a charade afterwards. Yeah. Where they're pretending like he's still alive so they can move the body to the hospital. They dress the body as they well. They dress the body as well. Um, and, and so... That once I got that, I was like, "Oh, I see what it is." And so everybody's gotten very conspiracy minded because they know there's something fishy. But yeah. once you understand what the fishiness is, it makes a lot more sense. Sure. The one thing I think for certain is, even if they sat down and told us the God's honest truth, their memory isn't quite yeah, ever going to be quite right. So I don't know who called who exactly yeah, yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think what happened is Raymond called and said why haven't you still come? Mm-hmm. And she was like, then she checked on him. And yeah. then she came back to the phone yes. and panicked. And said, come over. Come over, or what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, I don't even think she was fully cognizant of the fact that he was fully dead. Yeah. Like, I think it was just, I think she flipped her mind. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and having talked to her, she's not the person I, if I collapsed and died... I, or was about to die, I would want to rely on the call an ambulance. <laughs> Raymond, however, made a very calculated choice. And I think what he thought was he could get over there and get him into the hospital on time. And just like he had on May 10th. Yeah. Uh, and that was, I think it was irrelevant. Like, yeah. I think Bruce was already dead. Yeah. So I was sitting as far as I am from you with Raymond Chow. Yeah. And I said, why didn't you call the ambulance earlier? Yeah. And he looked at me and he went, <laughs> you're not the first person to ask me that question. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, Oh, you're not going to crack. No. You're not going to, you're not going to tell me. Um, you think there's, there's still stuff that he knows about that day. I think there's stuff he knows about that day. Uh, like for instance, who was the mysterious person? Yeah. What was that about? There yeah, was yeah. another, there was, uh, that was the testimony of one of the doctors, the ambulance, the scene, driver. The ambulance driver at the scene. So there was someone else in the room. There was a young man in the room who has never been identified to no. this day. And if you read through the transcript, I tried to condense the transcript cause it's a yeah. hundred pages long. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they actually called both of the doctor and Raymond Chow back and grilled them on that. And both of them were like, nope, there was no one else. So they, they denied it under oath, you know? Yeah. Um, 
uh, and it was a kind of vivid back and forth. Are you sure? Because the ambulance driver says it was. So there are very details around it that we will never know because Raymond's about uh, to pass away. And I don't think Betty will ever give up full details. Yeah. Um, but I think I got the majority of the story. Yeah. Yeah. The circumstances surrounding how he actually died. Right. You're right. There was an incident in May where he was doing some uh, dubbing mm-hmm. um, and he passed out that day. The severity of that, there's quite a lot of detail there that I didn't, didn't really fully yeah. know either as well. That was, that was very interesting. It reads like an epi- epileptic fit. It yeah. does read like an epileptic fit. Um, and also in the inquest that didn't uh, come about around his um, around heat exhaustion as well. Yeah. So now, so this this is an interesting theory which I I didn't know about. I hadn't heard about this. Yeah. So it's completely new. Yeah. Um, nobody had ever proposed this before, and I spent uh, six months like sending the case to various like a neurologist at UCLA, one at NYU, forensic yeah. pathologists, because I had no idea. Um, aspirin. Uh, the equagesic theory. Allergic reaction. Allergic reaction. Yeah. But what they're really talking about is allergic reaction to aspirin. Yeah. Um, never seemed very plausible. Uh, and I thought I was going to have to end my book on like, yeah. I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know. None of the theories are good. It's not ninjas, but otherwise yeah. I don't know. Um, but the, the two factors that you have in kind of doing the Sherlock Holmes of it is he had cerebral edema, mm-hmm. and there are only certain things that can cause cerebral edema. Mm-hmm. It's not a heart attack. So it's specific what killed him. So what caused the cerebral edema? That narrows your range of possibilities down. And then he had two incidents 10 weeks apart. The first one on May 10th, he collapses and nearly dies of a cerebral edema, but the doctors get to him in time. Mm-hmm. July 20th. He complains of a headache, lies down, and dies before they can get him to a hospital. Mm -hmm. So exactly the same thing 10 weeks apart. So you assume there has to be some relationship between them. Sure. Um, And on May 10th, he went into a very small dubbing room in Hong Kong on the hottest day of May. And Hong Kong, if you've ever been there, is It's intense. Yeah. (laughs) That place is hot. It's the tropics. Yeah. Uh, And they turn the air conditioning off. And so... uh, he ends up getting overheated and collapsed. And I had read something. There's a British nurse named Alexander Duncan who wrote a book called The Death of Bruce Lee. And he points out that the May 10th event looks very much like heat stroke. And mm. when he said that, I was like, oh, how did we all miss this? Yeah. Um, but how did they miss this? Because so, it doesn't come up, does it? It's, it's, it's all. It's not mentioned in, never, the, in the inquest even. Never. Yeah. Um, I think they also didn't realize um, that he had gotten the sweat glands removed from under his armpits. Exactly. So he, he's had his sweat glands removed. Right. And that was because... Why did he do that? Because he sweated profusely anyway. But it's, that's, yes. Yeah, so that was his way to counter that then. Exactly. Yeah. And apparently that was an operation that was done frequently back in the 70s. Ah, okay. So it was one of those like things that, you know, someday we'll look at Botox and be like, how did those barbarians <laughs> yeah, do that? Yeah, sure. So it's the same yeah. thing. I think someone said, hey, you're sweating too much on screen. It's really annoying. I can, you know, 10 minutes, we'll take care of it, and you'll be totally fine. Yeah. Um, So that happens three months before his first collapse, three or four months. And then 10 weeks later, he has a second collapse. And what I did was I went back and looked at my interview with Raymond Chow, and I hadn't really paid attention to this part of it. But he says in the interview with me something that he had never said before, which was, 
it was uncomfortable that day. I didn't feel well. Bruce didn't feel well. Uh, and then he jumped up and started performing scenes from Game of Death, mm. showing all the kung fu moves. Mm. Uh, and he was very active, and I think this made him a little tired and dizzy. Mm. He took a sip of water and then complained of a headache and went to lie down. Yeah. And I was like, that's heat stroke. Like, you know, yeah. those details. And it had totally laid there until I got the idea, and then I looked at the details, at the evidence again, basically. And I thought that's. I thought. That was the most convincing theory of all of them. And I basically talked to everyone about every single one, and there's only three that are scientifically possible. One is allergic reaction to that could cause cerebral edema. One is allergic reaction to aspirin. One is epileptic seizure. Mm. And the third is heat stroke. Yeah. And that's really the... you. There's nothing else that I could find that would explain the cerebral edema. Yeah, yeah. Not a ninja, then. Not a ninja, although I, I hear they have cerebral edema powers. <laughs> Towards the end of his life, I mean, you know, he's 32 years old. It's no age, is it? Yeah. Um, but his health had suffered, hadn't it? And particularly during the filming of Enter the Dragon. Right. Through not sleeping, being stressed. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't a particularly healthy man by the end, was he? Yeah, so that's... I have to say this. One of the things uh, that Linda said to me I thought was interesting is she said, everybody says that he didn't look well, but he looked fine to me. Mm. Um, So there is a counterfactual of Mm. someone saying this is not true. But everybody else said he looked pale, his skin looked gray, he didn't look good. Mm. Um, I think two things happened. One, the initial collapse hurt him more profoundly than people realized. Yeah. Uh, but then the second thing was when he died, his mother said it was overwork and that's too simple. But in a way I think his mother was right. Yeah. Which is the kind of personality it took to get Bruce Lee to the point where he was the first Asian American to ever star in a Hollywood movie was the same personality that couldn't take a break yeah. when he needed to the most. Yeah. And if there's a moral to the story, he was a man willing to pay the ultimate price to achieve his ambition. Yeah. Um, and that his greatest strength was his biggest vulnerability, yes. which was he just needed, when he first collapsed, to go to Antigua and hang out <laughs> on the beach out for a bit. Yeah. and recover. Yeah. And he didn't. And what happened was he lost 20 pounds, which for 145 pounds. 40 pound guys a lot yeah and he basically uh did was stop sleeping because he was so amped up about all the opportunities that were coming and he yeah. was going to seize this moment and and then i think fate did the rest yeah he yeah. made himself vulnerable um and then you know it's yeah. like you're driving the car fast yeah 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 <laughs> it's not your fault that it slides off yeah. the road but if you'd been going slower it wouldn't have happened sure that's sure. what i think happened you can see that in those last fight scenes he's filming with Sammo Hung, Star to Enter the Dragon. He's a skinny guy there. He's zero body fat on him, isn't there? He doesn't look like he did in Way of the Dragon. No. Right. And that's my that was my reaction when yeah. Linda said that. I was like, oh, look, I can look at the film. Yeah. Like we, well, his body shape changes within such a short space of time. Yeah. You know, he's... Um, Physique, his face shape. You've mentioned in your book there about steroids as well. Yes. Which I thought was interesting. I hadn't even really 
thought about that as a, a, a as a thing. But you're in a lot of your your research. He was into alternate therapies. Yes, but there's no real evidence of that. No. There? So Tom Bleeker, uh, who was Linda's ex-husband, yeah, uh, wrote a book on settled matters in which he made a lot of accusations that he didn't support. Sure. Um, and one of them was about steroids. And because Bruce's body changed so much, I think a lot of people just glommed onto that, like, of course. Yeah. And, of course, the time frame fits because steroids sort of took off in the late 60s and yeah. 70s. And Bruce had all the bodybuilding magazines. Uh, the reason, two reasons why, which is steroids make you big and puffy, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. But Bruce was ripped yeah. and tight. Yeah. Uh, and then the second issue was Bruce could not shut his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> if he had something that was cool that he was doing, he talked about it. Yeah. Um, so, and steroids weren't considered a bad thing then. Yes. So there was no reason to be ashamed of steroids in 1971 yeah. because they were legal. Yeah. And everyone who was into bodybuilding used them without any apology. So not, he never mentioned it once to anybody. Yeah. And Bruce didn't, Bruce, you know, he talked about putting electrodes on his head and running electricity through his yeah. body and, and drinking cow's blood. Yeah. So if he had taken steroids and it had made him big, he'd have told all his friends. Yes. Yeah. So those are the two reasons why I don't think it happened. All right. Let me try some of your kung fu. Was there anyone that really surprised you that you were really taken taken with when you when you met them? Uh, I thought uh, John Saxon was really charming. Okay, you know he just had first off, you know people talk about movie stars and they they're having something else. John Saxon's was like seventy four. He's one of the best looking men I've ever yeah. met. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and he just was cool, you know. And he yeah. just had something about him that was like, whatever it is that makes someone like a, a movie actor. And John Saxon is not the world's biggest star, but I was impressed by that. Uh, he had a very funny moment where he was talking, and he said, "Don't tell Linda this." <laughs> <laughs> and then he he tells me the story about how there were like cute girls on set. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was funny about funny. John. He knew pretty quickly he wasn't the star of Enter the Dragon, as much as he was sort of conned into believing that he would be. So that was another great revelation. One of the things I looked for with Bruce was I realized he was a highly rational actor. Yeah. Even though he had a hot temper, yeah. um, he was very calculated in what he did. And one of the things I couldn't figure out was all the Americans, when they talked about how Bruce was on Enter the Dragon, talked about how difficult he was. That he'd gotten, that he'd fired the screenwriter, yeah. that he'd yelled at Fred Weintraub, yeah. that he wanted to change stuff, that he was like, he didn't come on set the first 10 days, yeah. um, and bo boycotted, basically. Yeah. And the interpretation was, ah, Bruce got a big head. Mm. He had become a star, and he was flexing his muscle. And what I realized was that wasn't it at all. What it was was... He was terrified that Weintraub and Warner Brothers were just going to film this film in Hong Kong, go back to Hollywood, and recut it so that Roper, John Saxon, was the star. Sure. And the Green Hornet, he was going to end up as frickin' Cato again. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he thought they were going to do to him. Yeah. And he was right to believe that because Fred Weintraub had promised John Saxon that he was going to be the star yeah. to get him on the plane. Yeah. And they would have cut, they would have made Bruce Lee the number two. And the yes. other thing I realized... Would they have done, do you think they would have done that? If they, if, if it had tested. Yeah. Not on purpose. Mm -hmm. Like, 
and this is why you know Hollywood, in a certain sense, that that old line, the only color they see is green. Yeah, they detested that. And if Bruce Lee hadn't done well in Glendale, they'd have, they'd have recut it and they'd have shown the version where John Saxon is the star who yeah. comes there and does all the fights. Yeah. And if that had done better, that would have run. Yeah. And they wouldn't have thought twice about it. Yeah. They'd have been like, hey, we let you be number two. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right? Yeah. So uh, Bruce knew this and that's what he was fighting for. And, and so Saxon told me the story that I put in the book where Bruce calls him to his house and says... Show me your sidekick. And then he goes, let me show you mine. And Bruce knocks him across the room, lands into a chair. The chair collapses. Saxon's on the floor. He looks up. Bruce comes over. And Saxon says, don't worry, I'm not hurt. And Bruce says, I'm not worried about you. You broke my favorite chair. And in the interview, I said to John, so when did you know you weren't going to be the star of the movie? And he goes, that was the moment. That was the moment. That was the moment I knew. So. Fred Weintraub just jumps off the page as well. Yes. Um, so, who's sadly no longer with us. Yeah. Um, he seems like quite. A, he was quite a character. Ah, uh, he's a mensch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's like he's yeah. he's the true mensch, yeah. which is I came to interview him, and his dog was running around. He was sitting there. And he's got this big belly, and he's yeah. got a younger wife, and he lives in Beverly Hills, and he's still got a bunch of money, um, and. Uh, and I mentioned Kelsey, mm. which is the movie that he, a screenplay that he tried to get made with Bruce in it. Yeah. And I picked this up from like something in obscure. And he was like, no one's ever asked me about that. And from that moment on, he thought I was the best. Like yeah. he'd, he'd gotten, yeah, it was like this new talent he'd found. Yeah. So he found the screenplay for Kelsey and he's, and whenever I had trouble interviewing someone like John Saxon initially didn't want to talk to me. Yeah which I don't blame him, um, Weintraub called him up and was like, talk to the kid. And so he really, uh, he helped me with all of these things. And I, I just felt like um, when he passed, there was a real sadness because uh, he was one of those great, like, uh, reminded me a little of, do you ever watch Entourage? Yeah, Entourage, yeah. He yeah. was a little like Ari Emanuel. Yeah, sure. Okay. Like the agent. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, he would like blow like the up fixer. And, the fixer, but <laughs> yeah. yell and scream and whatever, and yeah, then yeah. be like, "I love you, let's hug it yeah, out." Yeah. Like he was, he was that kind of guy, yeah. and he was yeah. somebody who would tell you, "I'm going to make you the star," and then tell that guy, "I want to make him the star," yes, and then exactly. say, "I'm going to fire the screenwriter," yeah. and then tell yeah. the screenwriter, "Don't show up." But he made it work, and he was he was a mensch, even though he was like a total producer con yeah. artist. But he did have Bruce Lee's back, to be fair, didn't he? Like all those years, he was he was trying to you know for kung fu and yeah. like trying he was trying to find the vehicle for him, wasn't he? Well, that's what I think was interesting about him is that he was a talent manager first before yeah. he became a producer, and and I. Sometimes when you interview people in person, you get a sense of how they interact with you. Mm. gives you a sense of who they were. And he treated me like a new talent yeah. that he wanted to help. Yeah. And I think he had that instinct of a talent manager. And he saw in Bruce this talent that was untapped. And because he had no sort of racial bias, yeah. he saw, like, oh, who cares if the guy's Chinese? Yeah. Um, and... And so he he actually went through three different projects trying to find something that would work for Bruce. Yeah. When somebody else, lots of other people gave up on Bruce. Yeah, yeah. And true. so that's why I think he's special. Is um, there is no Bruce Lee without Enter the Dragon, and there's no Enter the Dragon without Fred Weintraub. Yeah, yeah. 
everyone seems to have a lot of nice stuff to say about Bruce. Sure. Um, I wrote down a comment from someone where he was described as a, uh, what was it? It was like a smart ass, uh, self centered arsehole. Yeah. I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> I love that quote. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I that mean, was Ruby Chow's son. And I like that because the Chinese, when they hate you, they hate you forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even he caveats that with something like, but at the end of the day, he did do he, a lot for. Yes. Um, you know, the perception of Chinese within film, right. within the wider world. Right. But on the whole, everyone's still very revered, look up to Bruce Lee. Very yeah, positive. I think so. Um, I mean, inevitably, when you come around with the, with your recorder, um, people tend to give you the best version. Sure. Right. Um, and also, uh, the people who hated him have sort of faded away. Yeah. That's always one of the things you worry about when you write a book is like... Because I like Bruce Lee kind of inherently, um, if, if that's not obvious by now. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, do you lean towards that? Are you being fair? Are you yeah. getting both sides yeah. or whatever? Which is yeah. what brings me back to the start of the conversation in what side of Bruce Lee do you show uh, if you're coming at it already an established you know, Bruce Lee fan? The temptation there is to just right. sort of siphon off this bit. We'll leave that bit on the cutting, yeah, cutting yeah. room floor and we'll focus more on this. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess that's the conflict of being a biographer anyway. Isn't yeah. It? Uh, well, we, uh, and that's why at the end of the day, this is my version of Bruce Lee. Sure. Um, I think it's the best one that's been, at least the most comprehensive that's been done. Um, but somebody could, you know, 10 years from now, we'll come up with one that they'll have a slightly different take. Wow, I guess you really know how to fight. But still, I can handle him. One of the issues that I, uh, friends of mine in the industry, uh, martial artists have criticized me for is they think I was too kind about Bruce Lee's uh, martial arts ability. Mm, okay. uh, that I spent, you know, too much time quoting his disciples or students who yep. think he's you know the best thing ever, which yep. is what most students do, and not enough quoting um, the karate champions like mm-hmm. Joe Lewis and mm-hmm. Mike Stone and Chuck Norris to a lesser extent, who were like, yeah, Bruce was interesting, he had some interesting ideas, but we could have kicked his ass. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I felt like I included that, but mm-hmm. but it was one of those issues which still comes up, like yeah. Well, he never fought in the same, like, open tournaments like Chuck Norris was doing. Exactly. Um, And his view was point fighting was kind of silly and had too many rules, which he was right about. And their point was, yeah, but you didn't try. And they're right about that as well. Yeah, that's true. And Bruce, but Bruce was really a performer. So, yeah, I think think that's a fair knock, which is... um, there are people who have a much more skeptical view of Bruce Lee. Um, Davis Miller, who wrote the Tao of Bruce Lee, yeah. um, offers a much more sort of skeptical view of who he was and much more critical of his uh, mm-hmm. personality. And I think that um, my overall view is uh, more forgiving. But it's pretty universally recognized that Jeet Kune Do is one of the earliest forms of mixed martial arts or at least a system not a style uh-huh. uh, Bruce Lee would have ha- hated that hated, yeah, style. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, as a hybrid system you know it is a forerunner for today's mixed martial arts it is I mean that's pretty universally acknowledged right? yeah, yeah yeah without yeah. question yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what Bruce did 
that I think was special to him, and partly I think because he was a Eurasian who was born in America and raised in Hong Kong, is he didn't feel as attached to Chinese tradition as some other, like Wong Jack Man. Sure. Uh, and he got over here and he had a very sort of practical eye. And because he was training not young Chinese kids, but he was training a bunch of street fighters yeah. who were American, yeah. um, they were showing him what they could do. Yeah. And I think he looked at them and he could dominate them, but I'm sure he thought, hmm, his footwork's pretty good. Yeah. You know, this is actually a little harder than it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what he, he picked up was Western combat martial arts. Yeah. Uh, and. I think for a long time, uh, people who were into martial arts had the snobbish view that boxing and wrestling mm. weren't a martial art, but mm. they absolutely are. Yeah. They're a version of it in a sport context. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he picked up, he looked at Ali in the ring and was like, that guy's a bad dude. Yeah. Uh, and so he started studying the boxers and he, and he realized some things that boxing, Western boxing, did that was superior to what the Eastern martial arts did. And I think the primary thing was footwork. Yeah. Um, the karate guys were like, this, their whole idea was to be grounded to the earth yeah. so they couldn't be moved. And one of the reasons why I think this is, is because traditional Eastern martial arts was weapons-based. Yeah. Um, and so if you're holding a sword... Yeah. Like, you don't want to move. And so their unarmed combat was based out of their weapons combat. Mm. But if you actually take all weapons out, being rooted to the earth with only your hands is a mistake. Yeah. And so that's one of the things I think happened, which is um, traditional martial arts, when the weapons went away, um, had some flaws, Eastern martial arts. And they were... you can expose that by you know things like boxing, and so Bruce was very good at figuring out what was wrong. When he first goes to America, his vision, his dream, is to open up different schools, become a martial arts instructor. That was that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. So the film stuff does does come further down the line. Yes. And it sounds like he, uh, by the end he was he was doing it for the money, really. Yeah. Teaching, you mean? Teaching, yeah. Yeah. But how serious do you actually think he was about being a teacher? Because what does sort of strike me is that he's meeting all these people, Judo Jean LaBelle, uh, Danny Nasanto. He's taking the best things yeah. that they're giving him in order to make himself better. Right. There's another telling scene when he first teaches Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And the first thing he's thinking is we need to be in a movie together. He's not thinking I'm going to make you a yeah. really great martial artist. Right. So, do you think that was important to him, like his students becoming really great martial artists, or was he more just like gathering and just learning for himself? Well, that's why one another reason why I think he was an actor first. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also think he was a young man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when I was twenty four, I wasn't thinking about other people very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think it was one of those things where he got into teaching because this was an opportunity to share his culture and to make a little money and yeah. also be in charge. And it was way better than bussing tables. Yes. But it wasn't what he ultimately loved. Yeah. And what he ultimately loved was being the center of attention and being an actor. Yeah. And he combined that with being a great martial artist. And so his first passion was to become the world's, you know, biggest star and also the best martial artist. Yeah. And helping other people came third or fourth. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he was, he was a loyal friend. He was a good friend. He did teach people. Um, and I, he did help them. 
but that but he that was not his primary goal. Yeah. And even his students who love him were like, you know, Jesse was a better teacher. You know, sure, Jesse sure. was more patient. Yeah. And uh, or they'd say James was more patient, or yeah. they would say Dan and Asanto taught more classes than yes. Bruce did. Yeah. So it's a fairly even the people who loved him very universally said like, you know, Bruce hung out with you so you would make him better. Yeah. And in the process you learned things, but it wasn't he wasn't sitting that there worried. He, no, he yeah. wasn't worried about your development. Sure. He was worried about his own. And now we'll see how good you are. It's easy to sort of make these predictions, and a lot of people do, uh, with regards to what Bruce Lee would have done yeah. uh, had he lived longer. What are your thoughts around that? Um, it, yeah, it's one of the fun speculation games yeah. because uh, it's like if Marilyn Monroe had lived or yeah. James Dean. That's why he's iconic, by the way. Yeah. Um, if he had lived to be 90, he'd still be a huge star, but you're never an icon. Yeah. Unless you die young, yes, that's a, it's almost a requirement. Yeah. Um, so, I the thing that struck me was that he wanted to be a bigger star than Steve McQueen, but he was actually following Clint Eastwood's playbook. Yeah, by going, uh, Clint Eastwood made the spaghetti westerns mm-hmm. that made him a star. Bruce Lee told people, "I'm gonna use Hong Kong like he used Italy." Bounce back to Hollywood, yeah. which is two important points. One is Hong Kong was always backup. Yes. It was never his first choice. Yeah. Um, he was only using them to get back to Hollywood. That's right. That was another thing that came through as well, that he sort of was using Hong Kong, really, wasn't he? He yeah. didn't want to go back there. No. He know. just wa- and, he did, he did, and it wasn't even that he thought Hollywood was treating him that badly at that point. Yeah. Because yeah. Longstreet had worked. Yeah. We just needed some cash. He yeah. went for a quick cash and then suddenly turned into this big thing. Um, so I... I my little fantasy, if I'm writing the fictional account of Bruce Lee who lives to be 80, is Bruce Lee is Clint Eastwood. Yeah. He's, he acted and he did like, you know, Enter the Dragon 6, and that yeah. didn't work. <laughs> and so he tries a comedy. Yeah. And then he bounces around. Um, but I think the thing that struck me was the happiest moment of his adult life, other than, a, you know, getting married and having children, yeah, yeah. Um, was filming Way of the Dragon. Yeah. Uh, because it, his most def- one of his two or three most defining qualities, besides being competitive, was wanting to, and needing to be in control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason he hated authority is because then he wasn't in control. Yeah, which is yeah. probably tied to his father's opium addiction. Yeah, da 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 da. But that um, that. When he was in control, he was really good boss. Yeah. And that's the thing I also thought I admired about it. Everyone pointed out. They were like, he was a total jerk to, yeah. <laughs> to his bosses. Yeah. But he was really good to everyone beneath yeah. him. Yeah. And when he was running the set of Way of the Dragon, he was happy. And he was in charge. And he was good at it. And I think he would have loved being a producer-director. Yeah. And making, you know, his he filming Unforgiven, the kung fu version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And being the star of it. Yeah. And, and I think he would have done more. More of that because he just really, uh, more than anything else, he hated being told what to do yeah. and being in charge would have mattered. Yeah. And he was, and even on the set of Enter the Dragon, you're right, he's given the producers a hard time, but he's having lunch with all the stunt guys. Yeah, and yeah. the stunt guys love him and yeah. they adore him and they'll follow him anywhere. Yeah. And he was, I called him a good gang leader. Like, mm. he's a guy who, you know, as long as you were following him, he was the best. But yeah. if you were challenging him, or trying to put him down, then you had a problem. Yeah. Um, but for everybody who was like his wife or his students or the stuntmen, they just adored Bruce because he was he was a good boss. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Finally, the most defining Bruce Lee moment 
Is it a uh, maybe a part of one of his films? You know, the one I will never forget is when in Way of the Dragon when he's alone uh, and he's just cracking his sort of body. Yeah. And he does the V. Yes. I don't know why that sticks with me because I'm not sure that's defining of who he is. But if I had it's the it's one the image moment. that came to mind was him when he does that yeah. and he looks like a, a like a cobra. Yeah. As the lats come out. And yeah. you just because for me being a skinny bullied kid, Bruce Lee looked like someone who I could be because he was a small scrawny guy who clearly had just worked out so much that he had become this. Yeah. And so for me, that's who Bruce Lee is, is he's the underdog who became the badass. Yeah. Uh, and that's why he's iconic mm. because he exemplifies that sort of arc. He's like Achilles. Like yeah. he, he's the, he's the modern warrior, but as the scrawny little kid who just through sheer effort becomes this, deadly dude yeah uh, and that's why i think that's why his legend lives on yeah yeah and it continues to this day doesn't it, it does it's and we're has us talking about it yeah yes. 40 odd years after he died exactly matthew thank you so much you wrote a tremendous book ah well thanks for having me it's a real honor to be here there we go amazing stuff matthew polly so grateful that he came out and took the time to sit with me to record that conversation there. It's just so much better when you get to sit with people face to face to record these conversations. It's it's great to do it online, but for me personally, it's, it's so much uh, better to do it in person. It's just generally a much better listening experience as well. I think I always prefer to to do these interviews face-to-face. And with Matthew, I could have easily sat there for another hour just going over details and revelations in the book. And it's a big book. (laughs) And although I know I'm preaching to the converted here, uh, I do think that even if you have just a passing interest in Bruce Lee or if you know someone with a passing interest in Bruce Lee it's written in such a engaging style that I think everyone would would gain something from this book so it's called Bruce Lee a life why not go out now and buy a copy as a, as a, an early christmas gift for the Bruce Lee fan in your life it is available wherever you get books okay it only remains for me to say a few thank yous at the end here thank you so much as always to george dennis for your ongoing technical support this season um i should say george does get a special mention every episode and i don't really explain why so considering that you have made it all the way to the end of this episode and thank you so much for doing that Here's a little window into George's role and the production process. George basically is the one who makes this show sound really good and loud uh, in the mastering and the compression phases. Once I've been in and edited the thing and added all those clips and links, he essentially deals with you know all the really next-level technical stuff that just goes way beyond my pay grade. Uh, and I am incredibly thankful uh, to him for taking the time to do that because he is busy with his own life and and definitely has far better things to be doing. Uh, So thank you so much, George Dennis, as always. Thank you to Matthew for taking the time to talk to me and thank you, the loyal Foo followers, wherever you are, for all of your support this year. Um, 
yeah, a lot of care and attention and time goes into producing this show, and it has been an absolute pleasure to see it evolve and get bigger and better and gain even more listeners each and every year that we do this. So thank you, anyone who has ever sent me a message or downloaded an episode or left a star rating or written a review or told a friend about it it all helps to grow our online kung fu community and increase our foo followers around the world so wherever you are thank you so much take care be kind be good to each other and i will see you soon whenever that may be on the next episode of the kung fu movie guide podcast Thank you. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.